the themes that this company was founded around, like using computer vision in agriculture, around making agriculture more sustainable by being more precise about chemical usage. Like all that stuff is great. We want to do it at scale and get to success. And I think that rallying around this kind of goal that ties both back to the mission of the company, but also to the financial results that we're generating is what's helping drive cohesion on the team. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Today's guest is Tiarko Liefer, the CEO of FarmWise, an agriculture, technology, and robotics company. Tiarko followed a unique path into the role of CEO at FarmWise after serving as an independent director on the board for three and a half years. As a businessman with an engineering background, we love talking to him about FarmWise's automated mechanical weeder that uses AI, computer vision, and robotics to pull out weeds and vegetable fields without the use of chemicals. This conversation will take a unique format as this episode will be split into two parts to explore all the business aspects and engineering considerations both at FarmWise and in Tiarco's background as an entrepreneur who's worked with both acquisitions and partnerships. In this first part, we touch on the cost of capital and how to build a business system that allows you to reduce impact when starting out. Tiarco highlights the work it takes to balance growing a product-based business and increasing profitability in existing product markets. We also discuss how to build a team within the blended industry of ag tech. We begin our interview with Tiarco sharing about the corporate development value at FarmWise and the challenges that come from stepping into a startup as a non-founding CEO. Yeah, the way... I originally got onto the board is I had been an executive at Climate Corporation through kind of a couple years pre-Monsanto's acquisition and a couple years post-Monsanto's acquisition of Climate. And so just a ton of experience and probably the first big example of software making a big impact in a strategic exit into agriculture. I had subsequently left Climate and started a company called Wellio that was doing natural language software in a different domain in online grocery shopping. And that company had been acquired, Wellio was acquired by Kraft Heinz. And so I was kind of doing the post-acquisition, leading a team piece, but I wanted to keep one foot in earlier stage companies. And I got introduced to FarmWise. And so my experience at Climate was really relevant for FarmWise, which was looking for kind of a tech operating executive to join the board as an independent director. And so it was just a great match. And what drew me to FarmWise originally was I've looked at a lot of ag tech companies like you guys have looked at. At Climate, I was responsible for corporate development, amongst other things. And we did a number of add-on acquisitions. And I also sat on the investment committee for Monsanto Growth Ventures. And so I looked at hundreds of ag tech companies. And so many of them were like, you know, we'll get you new kinds of data. And we'll do, you know, some fancy statistical stuff. And then you'll make better decisions. And that will translate somehow, but it's hard to draw a straight line to better profits and improvements in your operation. And with FarmWise, it's just the task, the line from what FarmWise does to realized value on the farm is very short and direct. I'm sure we'll talk more about what FarmWise does, but that was the differentiating piece for me about why it was exciting to get involved. And yeah, in terms of your question about like joining a CEO and what did it do, I mean, well, this is the first like non-founding CEO role that I've had. I've, you know, approached by headhunters for a number of different roles. And it's a pretty steep learning curve to kind of like come up to speed and try to find out what's going on really on the ground within a company that's causing them to decide they need to make a leadership change, you know, at some point in their development pathway, right? And this history of the company being an independent director allowed me to have a very 
solid understanding of what was going on in the company, understanding both you know the strengths and challenges that the company faced, and just come into that with a lot of confidence that I understood the situation and I could have an outsized impact on it. Yeah, so you weren't coming into a company where on day one, there were a lot of surprises internally. Yeah. Externally, it was a little bit different. You came in shortly before the SVB crisis and had a weekend where you thought that you may not have cash. Yeah. Curious, what was that like mentally for you? Like, how quickly did you act on that? And, you know, how did you separate kind of the emotion of suddenly finding out you had a company you're responsible for that you may not have cash to support with kind of the need to, you know, take action? Yeah. I mean, we've got a fantastic CFO and finance manager. So we had, I think, on by Friday afternoon or Saturday, a good view of our week-to-week cash needs. So we knew almost right away that we were going to be liquid for the first week. You know, our cash needs that first week were actually less than the FDIC limits. And so like we knew we didn't have an immediate problem. And it was really going to be, you know, I think the world sort of split into companies that did bi-weekly and bi-monthly payroll. Like if you had made payroll on Friday, which we did, and that money got withdrawn from our accounts beforehand, like there was actually a substantially less cash impact on the business the following week. And I think it was like the 13th or something or the 12th. People were, who were making payroll on the 15th were the ones that were in serious risk of having, you know, missing payroll and therefore being impacted. So, you know, I think it was definitely an exercise of, okay, depending on how much we're impacted in terms of cash that we're losing, what does that do for our runway? And, you know, we've got a business plan that gets us to being cash flow positive. We got to get to that point, right? So like, what are all the things we can cut and stop doing so that we can still execute that? And we kind of went through that. And yeah, once you find out you got your money, then you're still like, well, some of this stuff we still got to do, right? Even though, you know, it's not easy. But once you know kind of what the right thing to do if your back was against the wall... The thing that's really cutting into bone, you're not going to do, but other things we went ahead and did over the subsequent. That's really interesting. So this really was an unexpected catalytic event to make some changes to the business plan that you might not otherwise... Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a clarifying thing. And there's both hard decisions to make. And then there's also how do you communicate and justify that decision to your team, right? And I think this is a situation where everyone kind of gets a huge increase in the level of uncertainty I mean, we talk like abstractly about cost of capital, but like this is something that like everyone on the team can understand. It's like, you know, like a near death experience. Like we're going to do some changes. And I've been using the term like financial fitness internally, like that people can kind of understand. Like it's no regret to be financially fit in an uncertain world. Like we can only control the things we can control and we should work on our fitness. Yeah, it might be useful for, you know, CEOs and boards to be able to simulate that kind of an exercise. But, you know, short of a very cruel April Fool's joke, I'm not sure how you do it. You don't want to do it in a cruel way, but it's a reminder to kind of always clarify things down to what absolutely matters for your business, right? right? And you can go through that exercise without a gun to your head. It's probably a more pleasant way to do it. Right. And as you mentioned, we have a lot of discussions about how in the current environment we're in, capital costs are high. You're fortunate that we you came in shortly after we closed to Series B. There's a lot of support for the product vision. And you suggested that we also raise a bit of additional capital, which we closed on this week into the company to further extend the runway. And at the same time, a high awareness that you know distant cash flows are very much discounted in company values. There's a drive to you know short-term results. As a tech executive, how do you balance this kind of severe discounting to long-term 
expectations that we see now and the drive to short-term profitability with the need to position the company for a time when these discount rates back off. Besides the rapid rate of change and that being disruptive from a low cost of capital world to a higher cost of capital world, some of the discipline that comes from a higher cost of capital world is actually, it's something I appreciate. Building a self-sustaining business is like a yardstick that everyone can understand. The rotating, like, which metric is are people super excited about that's going to drive kind of crazy valuation is that's a whimsical sort of goalpost to be aiming for. And so this is like a return to basics, which I think is like always what one should be first focused on. Like, are you creating value for your customer? Do you have a mechanism by which you can capture a portion of that value for yourself in a sustainable way? And like, those are business basics. And then, you know, in euphoric times, you can kind of pedal to the metal on growth or other things, but it's also easy to get diverted into, you know, vanity metrics or other things that are not back to creating value for your customer. Can you give us a specific example in the case of FarmWise here through this exercise of something that you know had previously been identified as, yeah, this should be on the roadmap or on as part of the execution plan that with this new filter mm-hmm. is now out? One thing I think might be interesting to kind of touch on is, and we're very fortunate in this, is that we've been operating essentially robotics as a service. And we are transitioning to upfront hardware sales plus an ongoing kind of service and technology package. But that has the effect of really pulling forward our cash flows. It also happens to, and this is where we're fortunate, coincide with a mechanism of accessing the technology that our customers are telling us they prefer. right? And so we are kind of changing our business model to a model that is more appropriate in a high cost of capital world. You know, it just happens to coincide with the high cost of capital world and what our customers want. So we're like, we're not fighting upstream on any of these things. But in terms of things that we have stopped doing, you know, we use computer vision to automate a labor task for vegetable farms. We do automated weeding, which is, you know, the alternative is to do it by hand. Stepping back, like, you know, my view is that computer vision has reached a level of performance and cost that it's going to be applied in a myriad of ways in agriculture. And so to your question about like, we have stopped kind of a parallel effort to work on this weeding solution and other solutions at the same time. And instead, we have now made our entire bet on we're going to grow to additional use cases and opportunities through the vegetable weeding opportunity. And we have a technology architecture that supports that. So not too many months ago, the company had essentially a parallel product development roadmap. And this may get back to kind of the cost capital piece, which was entirely like, how do we get into a bigger market opportunity faster versus how do we get to profit faster and then access the bigger opportunity? Yeah, we talk a lot about companies that come in to pitch us on you know, act one and act two of the play. And act one is, hey, we're going to prove ourselves in this little market. Yeah, and yeah. then if we're successful there, we get to go to act two. So our initial reaction to that generally is, well, if act one is not that awesome, that's a lot of risk to take just to get to see if act two ever comes to pass. And so those are difficult leaps to make. And in a low cost of capital environment, it's easier to lull yourself into pursuing something like that and spending the money to pursue Act 1 and Act 2 in parallel. 
But in reality, if you don't actually achieve what you need to achieve in Act 1, there is no Act 2, yeah. even yeah. if you were pursuing it in parallel. So I think that focus now on what are the direct milestones that we need to achieve to validate that this business works is a distillation process that I think a lot of companies are going through and need yeah. to go yeah. through now. Yeah, we are in Act 1 and then Act 2, you know, company and strategy at this point. And I think... Clay, you had brought up like the additional capital raise. Like, I think when you're doing that one act, two act, you got to deliver on act one and then get prove enough of act two before you go out and raise capital again, if you're going to need to, because you could strand yourself in an uncomfortable place, which is, hey, you've proven you can do act one, but that segment is too small to justify, you know, the valuations you've had in the past or the capital that you need to raise to go into, into act two. Yeah, the other out to that trap potential is what you also mentioned, which is to have a plan to get to cash flow breakeven yeah. and profitability yeah. on Act 1. So even if Act 1 is small, you have infinite time if you can get to profitability yeah. to go figure out where you go from there and to not be fully funded for Act 1 puts you in a much more difficult position. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I've heard this line once, which I really subscribe to and I think will apply in our case, which is, you know, good teams continue to unlock adjacencies so that it's not quite this binary act one, act two piece, right? Once you have a sustaining business with momentum in that act one, you're going to keep growing that. We'll probably messing up the analogy at some point. And that's going to get you what you need to go into the even bigger opportunity in act two. The product that PharmWise is coming to market with is a very sophisticated machine. There are bespoke, you know, in-house designed actuators that are mechanically sophisticated. The sensors are sophisticated, the software. You have an engineering background, both in undergrad and grad school. And I'm curious how deep you go into the product. You've got, you know, 60 engineers or more in the company and, you know, specific responsibilities for each of these things. How helpful is it to you? Could you do what you're doing if you didn't have an engineering background? So we've got about 35 engineers at the company. I have learned not to push my engineering solutions. So I get out of the way. It's going to be my code on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do like to go deep so that I have a mental model of our systems and how they work and how they relate to each other, where we can kind of access expertise from others versus like really what is the core of what we need to do. And that kind of mental model can exist at multiple layers of extraction. I don't think it takes an engineering degree, but I think it takes like systems thinking. I think it's very advantageous in a technology company. And let's face it, like, you know, the most common exit is through acquisition is to really understand what the core capabilities are that your company has and what the needs and solutions are that you can plug into in terms of what other players, the kind of scale businesses in your space, so that you are constantly thinking about your own product and product development in a way that it creates optionality for the business. Like I'm a huge believer in like focus, 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 but stacking up like free options where you can get them. I'd be curious to dive into the what you just mentioned about you know the team capabilities being kind of the value of the company and you know you have exceptional engineers you know each of whom operates as a distinct unit how do you institutionalize that and turn that into enterprise value and i think of that particularly in a case where you're making this product where you need to balance kind of individual creativity with you know people delivering 
together on a time frame? How do you build a culture to tie that together? Yeah, I, and this relates back to kind of the financial uncertainty piece. Like I have, since coming in, really, we kind of define what's our game plan for 2023. And it's this push to profitability. You know, FarmWise was founded in 2016. We have had multiple, you know, three plus years of successful weeding as a service business. We've learned a ton doing that, but we've got to turn the corner now and really build a sustainable business and just getting everybody rallied around that. Like we have this shot to get to a profitable business. And, you know, the themes that this company was founded around, like using computer vision in agriculture, around making agriculture more sustainable by being more precise about chemical usage, like all that stuff is great. We want to do it at scale and get to success. And I think that rallying around this kind of goal that ties both back to the mission of the company, but also to the financial results that we're generating is what's helping drive cohesion on the team. We're very much in a refine, simplify, and make robust our next generation product as opposed to like a proof concept, like it can work, right? We've been through proof of concept. We've been through understanding what it takes to make it reliable. Now we're executing that. What's your experience in the difference between farmers as a customer and you know, other business customers or consumers as customers? Are there stereotypes or generalities you would make? I won't call them stereotypes. I mean, I think there's an interesting mix of like small business decision-making. Like you're often talking to the owner, but the sizes are actually the like, sizes of capital investment, the size of the business in terms of balance sheet revenue is like, generally when people think of like a mom and pop business, it's like a corner deli store or something like if you live in an urban area, like these businesses are just like orders of magnitude larger. And it's like, you know, if you met another startup with like a $20 million balance sheet, you'd expect to like meet with a CFO and like they'd have all these like corporate functions and like an <laughs> HR department. <laughs> and all, you know, and then you meet a farming operation that has that kind of financial scale and it feels a lot more like a mom and pop business in terms of like how decision making is made, which I think is... So it just requires differences, I think, relative to other enterprise. Like it's a mix of enterprise and SMB kind of sales motions. I think the other thing that is... And it depends on the farming segment, but we kind of started talking about this thing at Climate Corp, which is, I think, just a very interesting and useful way for people who don't have firsthand experience with farming to sort of think about it, which is like, you know, if you only are going to earn like 40 paychecks your whole life, like, you know, what kind of like care and thinking would go into like what's going to drive like the outcome of that, right? And... So if people get like frustrated that farmers are like slow to adopt some technology, like, hey, you know, I got this new whatever, you know, seed treatment or this biological or whatever, you know, a startup is trying to take out. And then there's this, there's always this like, oh, well, agriculture is like slow to adopt. Well, like, yeah, you would be too, if like one of your 40 paychecks in your life, were going to completely depend on that decision. So I think it's a good way of sort of disabusing this sort of reputation of being you know, backward or slow to adopt technology, right? There, there are very good reasons from a just a living to see the next day sort of survival of the business, which is paramount for people. Have you had to drive a mindset change in the sort of go-to-market sales group, having been multiple years in a service-oriented business and now moving toward an equipment sale-first kind of business? Yeah, we have the benefit that our sales, our initial sales, are coming from existing service customers. 
But the farm operations manager who makes a decision about hiring in a service to do work this week is not the same as the person or the group of stakeholders involved in a decision to make a million-dollar CapEx decision. And so, yes, we are fortunate that we have a history with a number of our customers, but we also need to really deepen our relationships with them in order to make the capital sale. When you think about the challenge of running a business that's building hardware compared to you know prior yeah. software businesses that you've been associated with, how does the working capital need of the business and on the flip side, selling to farmers who may need to finance these purchases, talk a little bit about how that complexity changes the way you think about operating a business? Well, I think it's some understanding of like, you have to have a good understanding of the cash flow needs of your business. And I think it's like, when people have like simpler businesses, you just always have to be thinking about how you're going to fund your growth out of then the cash flow cycle of it. And I think software-only businesses, it's, it's easy to lose track of that. It's a much simpler business when it's like, it's all fixed cost. And then when I sell something, it's like all margin. Maybe there's a little bit of like variable expense to sell it. But yeah, I think it's just having good models for that. Luckily, another company I'm on the board of, and it's a hardware also business, lived through a lot of supply chain pain that they went through. And so... You know, when you're manufacturing and delivering hardware, you know, you need every last component in order to deliver a finished product to people. And so luckily, some of like the extreme stresses in the supply chain have eased up. But anyone can conjure up, you know, more code or squash a bug. But like if there's, you know, some component missing, you can't deliver to customers, right? It just takes a different amount of planning and kind of risk mitigation diligence than if you're just in a software-only world. Yeah, you can't just scrum this thing and iterate hardware every yeah, few yeah. weeks. We've asked a number of our other guests about the sales force profile. So what does a good salesperson look like for a particular product? So in your case, and selling the hardware and then the ancillary software and, and ongoing services, do you have a preference for or experience with kind of the domain expert relative to the person who has sold that hardware yeah. or hardware like it before? Yeah. Every ag tech company I've met has this question, right? Like, do we go hire the enterprise salesperson or the person who's sold into ag before? I think that it's probably a mix of both on a bit that you need on the sales team. I mean, in general, my experience in ag tech companies is you need to build cultural bridges of mutual understanding between technology development and the realities of agriculture. In our case at FarmWise, like our VP of sales comes from a background of selling into agriculture, like a career in selling into agriculture, but has been part of like new product introductions and has just like a mindset, which is probably helpful for all salespeople of just optimism, confidence, yeah, and understanding that in technology companies, like you're building the plane while you're flying it. And, you know, someone isn't constitutionally set for that, like they're going to really struggle. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fall Line Field Notes. I'm Eric O'Brien. And Clay Mitchell. When Tiarco first joined FarmWise, it was right at the SBB crisis when he had a weekend where he thought he might not have cash. and He stayed very even keeled through that. And I think we hear through this interview, just a CEO who's learned from experience how to stay very balanced in his role. I'm excited to build on this topic in the next episode as Tiarco talks about the acquisitions and integration with agriculture and tech startups. Be sure to follow this podcast so you can get notified when part two of this interview is released. You can find us wherever you download your podcasts or check us out on our website at www.fall-line.com capital 
www.thinkdigital.com.